0: We would gain a greater love for you and for others we also pray this morning father for the young man and his wife the man who usually handles our sound system here he and his wife are at the hospital and she's having a baby we pray for them and ask your blessings on them and their family and this child we ask all this in jesus name amen greet somebody Good morning, good to see everybody this fine morning, good morning, Uh, an older man amongst us just a few seconds ago asked me if I'm going to talk about sex again this morning, I said I assure you that I won't, he said well you should, young people know about it, married people practice it, when you get my age you forget what the fuss is about, (laughs) I assure you that's not what we're talking about this morning, but we are coming to the end of our series in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, a holy man in an unholy society. Now, I got to confess to you, as we've investigated these early Christians, I do feel a little bit more holy. I mean, these guys were a bunch of wackos. It's kind of like, you know, you know that you're a sinner, but you look at the guy across your breakfast table, and I don't feel too bad about myself anymore. That's what's going on here. These guys... Were a few cards short of a full deck. We remember 1 Corinthians. There were many issues plaguing that church, and Paul spoke into every single one of them. They had issues with division. Many Christians were choosing their pastor based off their preferences, and Paul spoke into that problem. Uh, they had misunderstandings of the gifts of the Spirit. They were lording whatever gift they had over each other, and that was disastrous. Paul said the greatest gift is love. Uh, They had issues of lawsuits, idol worship, and of course, remember that bozo in chapter 5 who broke the cardinal rule and took his mom to prom. Uh, There was lots of horrible things happening in that church, lots of moral issues that Paul speaks into. Now, we do know, however, that we can see ourselves in those early Christians. As much as we wouldn't want to admit it, we are just as bad as they are in one way or another, for Scripture says that all fall short of the glory of God, so we are to understand that when Paul speaks to the Corinthians, he is speaking to us as well. Now, when we hop into 2 Corinthians, Paul's tone changes greatly. Uh, There's been lots of people who have repented. Um, The Spirit is moving there. People are growing in faith, and Paul encourages them in the faith. However, when we get to chapter 10, Paul's tone changes again. There's a small minority of people who have not yet repented in that church, and on top of that, there's been false apostles that have come to Corinth. These guys had an over-realized eschatology. They were manipulating the gospel of Jesus Christ to for it to say what they wanted it to say, to meet their own ends. And what's really bad about all this, people were actually beginning to follow them and believe what they were saying. They were speaking against the cross of Christ. They were speaking against the paradigm of Christ, which is humiliation leads to exaltation. They were speaking against that, and they were boasting in their apparent lack of weaknesses. Now. Sandy said last week that Paul very snarkily calls them the super apostles, the huper apostolos. Now what these guys were saying were basically, we have this, Paul doesn't, we're great, Paul isn't, listen to us. Now what Paul does in chapter 12, our passage for this morning, is absolutely masterful. Paul takes the bait, he plays their game, in so doing he shows all of us that it's precisely weakness. That is the realm of possibility where God brings himself glory and we actually experience the power of Christ. Now there are three overarching points uh, where Paul makes his point and they're masterful, we'll get to them in a second, but first let us go to the very word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, where either in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but not on behalf I will not boast, except of my weakness." Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think of me more than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, or translated out, to buffet me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing." The signs of a true apostle will be formed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I'll most gladly spend and be spent for your souls." If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Do we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, that I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality they have practiced. This is the word of God. Now, to steal a sermon from a man, or an illustration from a man named J.R. Vassar, in 1931, a man named James Adam wrote a book called The Epic of America. Now, in that book, he laid forth what we would now call the American dream. This is what he describes the American dream being. He says, That dream is of a land in which life should be richer, better, fuller for everyone with opportunity according to ability. It's not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely but a dream of social order in which men and women are able to obtain to the fullest stature regardless of birth or position in life. Now we can all get behind that dream. That is a dream of freedom. That is a good dream. But somewhere along the line, that dream has been distorted into the decades of not necessarily being a dream of freedom anymore, as it is a dream of individual advancement and self-glory. Uh, We live in a culture that teaches us if we have weaknesses, if we have limitations, hide them at all cost. They will do you no good. Whatever your weaknesses are, cover them. And rather, pursue monetary plenty, a life of comfort, and a life of ease. Our culture teaches us that weaknesses, limitations, are bad things, and that we should aspire to be super, to live that comfort of life and ease. Our heroes are those who have Pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, who are strong and self-sufficient and significant. This is what our culture teaches us. Now, uh, my limitations were never made more obvious to me than when I was a wide receiver uh, at Houston High School my junior year out in Germantown. Uh, I was a third string wide receiver, and for for some reason that summer, my junior year, all of us got letters and invitations to go to a football camp at Ole Miss. Now, it wasn't a big deal because everybody in the city was invited, right? Uh, but here I am, a third-string wide receiver with aspirations of playing with Peyton Manning one day. So I got that invitation, and I'm, just, I'm on cloud nine. I am floating, right? So I get to Oxford, and almost immediately I realize that I was born on the shallow end of the gene pool, okay? <laughs> These guys were monsters, all right? It was like I was in the land of the Nephilim. One guy had a neck as big around as my waist, okay? I was flexing. Nobody noticed. It was awful. I ran the 40. I was hoping to do a four seven for a wide receiver. I ran it like in four weeks. All right? David Cutcliffe could have timed me with a sundial. All right? It was awful. And I remember in that moment that, you know, I'm not a football player. I don't have the get things for it. My body's too weak. And I remember also feeling embarrassed by that fact. I was really deathly afraid of all of my teammates and my friends finding out how terrible I did, how weak I was. Now, those are the feelings of a snot-nosed high school student, but we know as mature Christian men, some of us elders, some of us deacons, we have that same attitude towards our limitations and towards our weaknesses. And we listen to the voices of the super apostles, and we try to hide them, we try to cover them, and we boast in ourselves, we boast in our weaknesses, and we pretend to be people that we are not. We love the voice of that apostle, those super apostles, because at the end of the day, in our hearts, we want to be like them. We want to be super. God knows that. So through Paul, he tells us our very first point in verse one, the Christian must be careful to boast. Now, here's what's happening in Corinth. Um, Those super apostles and that minority of believers that were giving Paul trouble put Paul in a terrible position. Paul says, listen, you're forcing me to do what I don't want to do. You are forcing me to boast out of my love for you just to prove to you that I'm worthy to listen to. Now, Paul plays their game, and we'll see why in a second. But from this very first verse, Paul tells us that boasting is stupid. It's fruitless, and the Christian must be careful to do it. Now, all of us know people in our lives that we would describe as those holy rollers, you know, those holy Joes, that pretend somehow, some way, they've reached the pinnacle of spiritual maturity, right? We know those guys mainly because they're a royal pain in the boutoir, you know? We have those people in our life, uh, and somewhere somewhere down the line, they've made us feel almost insignificant in our spirituality. I've talked about this guy before in a sermon. I made a joke about it, uh, but he really did have a profound effect on me. I met a guy in seminary, and uh, he was a nice guy. He was uh, from North Carolina. He described himself as a charismatic Calvinist. He used to give me and a bunch of my buddies a hard time for not having the gift of tongues. And he gave me trouble about it, and he, he made me feel like there was something wrong with me because I didn't have this gift, that his spiritual life with the Lord was greater and grander and better than mine because I didn't have this. And I knew he was an idiot, but it really affected my soul, right? So... I went to this man named Dr. Moo Jang Lee. He was a first-generation South Korean. Uh, before he became to Christ, he was a Marxist and worked for the government. He became a Christian, and he and his entire family became prayer warriors, and they met in secret in the mountains to pray for the church global. Unbelievable guy. So I sat down in his office, and I almost wept. I mean, I was really concerned with this. And he says, Barton, calm down. You have to ask yourself two questions. I'll never forget it. What is this guy boasting in, and why is he boasting? And he helped me realize that this boy was boasting in himself for the purpose of his self-glory. When we hear people boasting in the church or when we catch ourselves boasting, we need to ask ourselves three very important things. What is being said? What is the reason? And what is the basis of the boast? Now let's use those super apostles as a case study. What were they saying? They were saying, hey, Corinthians. We are better than Paul. We're more eloquent than he is. We're more powerful than he is. We're greater teachers than he is. We're even better looking than he is. We are great. He is weak. Listen to us. That's what they were saying. Now, what was their reason? Quite simple. It was to build their own kingdoms and to climb up the social ladder. Now, we know those desires aren't too far from ours. But that was the reason for their boast. Now, what was the basis? This is the most important. What was the basis for their boast? It was their own record. Their social record and their moral record. Now, why does Paul say, Christian, be careful to boast? Because whatever we boast in reveals what we hang our hat on. Whatever it is that you boast in reveals basically your justification theology. Paul says, are we acting like those super apostles who are boasting in our own record he says, Christian, if you're doing that, don't do that. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and later in Galatians 6, it is absolutely foolishness to boast in your flesh before a just and holy God. Why? Because we're all sinful. Don't boast in yourself or another person. That is absolutely foolishness. However, you are to boast in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is Jesus Christ who is our justification. It is Jesus Christ who is our sanctification. It is Jesus Christ who is our holiness. It is the record of Christ, not our record by which we are accepted by God. And Paul says, why would you even think about following suit with those super apostles, boasting in your own record, boast in Christ's record? So in this very first verse, Paul completely demolishes the whole idea of boasting, He says it's foolishness. In Christian, you must be careful to boast because it reveals what you hang your hat on. Are you boasting in your record or Christ's record? So first and foremost, the Christian is careful to boast. Now in verses 2 through 10, Paul actually plays this game. Um, He plays the game of the super apostles who are boasting in their super religious experiences. And Paul says, fine, if you want to know of a religious revelation, let me tell you mine. In so doing, Paul tells us uh, three very important things. First and foremost, the Christian chooses weakness over self-glory and self-sufficiency. Now, apparently, these super apostles, they were telling everybody about these very fantastic revelations and visions they were having. They were fanciful. They were glorious and powerful. And they were telling everybody that would listen about these visions— now, they wanted people to, to believe that they were from God and they were greater than Paul. So they were telling, us, telling everybody, hey, hey, Corinthians, look at us. Look at these visions that we're having. God sent us to you. Paul isn't having these. Our visions are glorious. We must be from God. So Paul says, fine, if you want to understand and, and, and see a real Christian revelation, listen to me. Now, it's important for us to understand that Paul is not playing the comparison game here. He's not playing that. All he's simply doing is saying, Christians, my experience is different from theirs because mine is in line with the gospel and redemptive history and theirs isn't. So Paul tells us of his vision. Look at the words Paul says. and They're fantastic. He says a third heaven, a paradise. Was that in body or out of body? I don't know. God knows. I mean, that is some mysterious, intriguing language. What is Paul talking about? Uh, there is a collective sigh from scholars, I don't know. <laughs> it's, you know. He's using this mysterious language, but he only gives us two verses to describe what he experienced. Two verses. What scholars do agree on, however, this is not his conversion experience that he's talking about. Remember his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. I mean, that was glorious. He saw Jesus and all of his resurrected glory. He was made blind because of it. But this is different. I mean, he told Luke about that. This, he hasn't said anything for 14 years. This is his most intimate, most special moment with Jesus Christ, and he gives us two verses. Now, we can glean a lot from the word that Paul uses for paradise. The word that Paul uses for paradise, this is incredible. In the Old Testament, 28 out of 31 times it's used for the Garden of Eden. That intimate a place where God actually dwelt among his people temporally. 28 out of 31 times. Now, in the New Testament, it's used two times. Luke 23, when the criminal dies on the side of Jesus, and Jesus says, today, will you'll be with me in paradise. And in Revelation 2.7, where the apostle John has the vision of new creation in full, where the tree of life, which used to be in the Garden of Eden, will now be in God's dwelling place the entire earth. This is what G.K. Beale says, an unbelievable scholar. He says, when Christ rose from the dead, he tore the veil which separates us from God. So now we have access to God, but one day we'll have full access to God temporally. Paul had a vision of new creation in full, much like the Apostle John, where one day the tree of life will be the temple city, which will cover the face of the earth. This is what this is describing. This is, this is Paul's vision as most as we can tell. He had a vision of what new creation will be like when it's here in full. Where all of us who are Christians in our resurrected glory will be with God temporally over the face of the earth, which the entire earth will be his new created dwelling place. Paul had a taste of that. Can you imagine how powerful that must have been, how fantastic it was? It was much different from the visions of those super apostles because Paul's is in line with the gospel and in line with redemptive history. Yet still, he only gives us two verses. And if you're like me, you're just pleading with Paul, tell us what you saw. But Paul is reluctant to tell us. Now there's three things that we learn from Paul's reluctance. First and foremost, the Christian gives God glory and not the self. The Christian gives God glory and not the self. Right now, there's a lot of money and fame to be had in visions of heaven in America. Right now, there is a movie in the uh, theaters based off a book that's uh, purported to be a true story called Heaven is for Real. It's about a five-year-old boy who uh, says he went to heaven and came back down to earth, and he told everybody what he saw. He said he sat in God's lap. The angels sang hymns to him, the boy. He had the privilege of wearing a crown and wearing... Angels' wings, but he didn't like them because they were too heavy and too big. He even saw the Holy Spirit, and he described him as being kind of blue. Seven million copies sold from this book. Seven million. There's other books like it. One called uh, "The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven," written by his father. Get this. His name is Kevin Malarkey. As, uh, as David Platt says, pun intended. But there's this huge phenomenon sweeping America, and many pastors have spoken out against it. Uh, John Piper and John MacArthur. John MacArthur says, It is impossible to conclude that these modern testimonies, which are self-focused and give little attention to the glory of God, are true. They're either fantasy, false memories, dreams, or bold-faced lies. All biblical accounts of revelations of heaven are focused not on the self, but on God's glory. Four people in the Bible had visions of heaven. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John, all of them gave glory to God and not the self. Paul, for instance, was focused on minimizing thoughts of man and maximizing the glory of God. He would later say that Paul's theology was not based off mystical experiences, but on Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected, the fulfillment of God's promise of salvation, the divine wisdom in which God creates, maintains, and brings consummation to everything that exists. Paul has more reason to boast than any of us. He had this fantastic, amazing vision that everyone in here, if you're smart, wish that you've had. But yet still, Paul says the Christian gives God glory and not the self. Secondly, in the words of Tim Keller, Keller, we're to understand from Paul's reluctance that there's a holy shyness in the spiritual experiences of a Christian. A holy shyness. There's a biography uh, about Martin Lloyd-Jones out there that's really good. Uh, the author tells us of an experience, a powerful experience that Jones had uh, back in the summer of 1949. In the summer of 1949, Jones uh, was severely depressed physically and spiritually. He was at his rope's end. Uh, he even took a sabbatical from preaching for an entire summer because he just did not have it in his soul to teach the gospel. He was at his, he was at his rope's end. Now, one morning, he gets up, he gets dressed, he sees a book on the table, and he catches a word in that book, and that word is glory. This is what the author writes of that experience. Instantly, like a blaze of light, he felt the glory of God surround him. The nearness of God, the reality of heaven, became overwhelming truths, and in a state of ecstasy, he writes, I fell to the ground and wept. Now, the interesting part is Jones never spoke of this. The most profound experience he ever had, and he never spoke of it. And the author thought that was peculiar, but he did some research and found out there's been many more Christian men and women like himself that have had the same experiences and never spoke of them. For example, Dwight Moody and William Guthrie. William Guthrie would later say that the glorious manifestation of God to the soul is much better felt than spoken of. In these very intimate moments they had with Jesus, they had a holy shyness. And Tim Keller explains it as such. He says, imagine that you are the modest Christian man that you are, and you're in a locker room. Your entire body just cringes when another man exploits his sexual escapades with his wife and describes it in detail. Your body cringes because that is an intimate moment that's to be shared with with husband and wife, not to be shared with other people. He says, so it is for Paul. Paul had such an intimate moment with Christ, it was almost unfaithful to talk about it. So unlike these super apostles and those holy rollers we might know, Paul has this phenomenal experience, but his sole purpose is to give God glory and not the self. Now, the last principle we can take from Paul's reluctance is probably the most important, and we see it back in verse 2. The only prerequisite for having access to Christ is being in Christ. When Paul describes his vision, he he kind of uh, separates himself from it. He didn't say, I had this vision. He said, what? A man in Christ was called up into heaven. For Paul, the most important phrase there is a man in Christ. Now, all of us, myself included, have seasons of when we're down on ourselves spiritually. We think to ourselves, we're no good. I'm nowhere near where I should be in the faith at this point in my life. I've sinned way too much. I've never had these powerful experiences. I've never led anyone to Christ. I've never led a Bible study. I've never led a discipleship group. God simply cannot use me. All of us need to hear this this morning because this is very encouraging for us. Paul says, listen, you don't have to be super. You don't have to hide your shame and your weaknesses. If you want to know Jesus, if you really want to experience him, truly experience him, all you need is a simple faith. A man in Christ experienced Jesus. Paul is not just reluctant. God forbade him to tell us of his vision. Because God wants us to understand that the Christian life is not about mystical experiences. It's about having faith in his son. And that's encouraging news. The most important thing is that the only prerequisite for having access to Christ is simply being in Christ. Now in verses 7 through 10, Paul switches gears and says, now if I must continue boasting, I'm only going to boast in my weaknesses. Uh, We learn several awesome things from this first and foremost. Strength and weakness are inseparable in the Christian walk. In verse 7, Paul says, so as to keep me from becoming conceited a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. We can retranslate that, to eat me. That's what buffet means, okay? So a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to eat me, all right? Now what's Paul talking about? There's lots of debate here. Thorn, uh, translated in the Greek, would be a stake. Kind of like a tent stake that's shoved into the ground to keep the tent from flying off. So Paul... What he's saying, there's literally been a stake that's been shoved through me, that's tying me to the ground, keeping me from being puffed up. That's Paul's thorn. Now, what is Paul's thorn? Again, we're not really sure. There's been lots of debate about it. Was it malaria, epilepsy, uh, some sort of physical ailment, poor, bl- or poor eyesight? We're not very sure. We are sure that it's not sin. In verse 9 or 10, Paul says he's content with his weakness. Now, that's not language Paul uses normally with sin, right? Paul kills his sin, and he urges us to kill sin. However, it is a blessing that Paul does not tell us what his thorn is. Why? Because every single one of us can read our own weakness into this text. If Paul said that his thorn was epilepsy, well, you know, most of us wouldn't be able to relate to that. But he leaves it open so all of us can read ourselves into this text, our weaknesses. Now what might our thorns be? A thorn is anything that you have in your life that will cause you to ask this question, why God? Why God can I find a job? Why God have I lost my job? I didn't deserve it, I didn't deserve to be fired, why God? Why God wants you heal me from the sickness and illness I have? Why God did you let this person die? Why, God, has my relationship busted? Why, God, can I seem to put to death this sin that's just tearing me apart? All of us have those thorns. Some of us, many of those thorns. One of the greatest lies that Satan ever told the church is that God will never give us something that we can't handle. We've all heard that in bedtime stories, but that's against Scripture. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, that we were burdened beyond strength. We despaired life itself. Now that's a thorn Paul could not handle. J.R. Vassar says that God sometimes will heal us, but sometimes he'll also leave us crippled, physically or metaphorically. The question we all have to ask is, why? Paul gives us some very profound answers. First and foremost, our weakness is for our growth in power and the maturity in faith. We see this all throughout Scripture and the Bible and in the testimonies of other men. Weakness and strength go together much like humility and faith go together. For example, in Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was weak, right? But then he was made strong. In Paul, he was strong. He had this mighty vision from God. And he was running the danger of becoming boastful and prideful, that there was something special about him, so God gave him this weakness. It's much like walking, one foot forward, then another step. One foot forward, then another step. That's how we grow in strength. For Paul, strength and weakness go together because that's how we grow in power and in faith. That's how we grow in power and in faith. Uh, Another scholar says... Paul says, I would have never had anything like the power I have now or the freedom from fear if God had not put this weakness in my life. If I did not have this weakness, I would simply be filled with fear. To put it frank, Paul viewed his weakness, whatever his thorn was, that was just dragging him to the ground as a gift from God. Because for Paul, strength and weakness go together much like the cross and the resurrection go together. And Paul understood that God chooses what is weak in the eyes of the world to shame the strong. And he was privileged that God gave him this gift so that he could grow in faith and in the power of Christ. Now, when we approach the thorns that we all have, we must be careful because there is a message from Satan and also a message from Christ. Uh, Paul says that this thorn was given me. Scholars call that the divine passive. That means that Paul understood that for some reason, in the mysteriousness of God's will and sovereignty, God gave him this thorn. And he counted it as a gift. But he later says and describes this thorn as a messenger from Satan that eats me. This is what Paul is talking about. The Satan will go after whatever weakness the Lord might give us. And he'll distort the message for the purpose of causing us to despair. One of my favorite stories is about John Bunyan. Uh, John Bunyan was a a famous Baptist preacher who wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, For 12 years, he was in prison from 1660 to 72. Uh, He had a massive thorn in his life, and he had two messages to listen to. This is his story. John Bunyan was in the Bedford County Jail. He writes, The parting with my wife and poor children have often been to me in this place as the pulling of my flesh from my bones. Not only because I'm somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet which should I be taking from them. Especially my poor blind child who lay nearer in my heart than all that I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of hardship, I thought my blind one might go under, would break my heart to pieces. But this broken bunion was seeing treasures in the Word of God because of this suffering that he would probably not have seen any other way. He was discovering the meaning of Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He writes, I had never had in all my life so great an inlet into the Word of God as now in prison. The Scriptures that I saw was nothing in before or made in this place to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also is never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen Him. I have felt Him indeed. I have seen such things here that I am persuaded I shall never while in this world be able to express. Being very tender of me, God hath not suffered me to be molested, but would with one Scripture and another strengthen me against all, insomuch that I have often said, were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. He had a massive thorn and he had two messages to listen to. And he chose the latter, the message of Christ. Every single one of us in here have thorns in our life. But what message are you listening to? Say, for example, you lose your job. Are you listening to the message of Satan that says you're worthless, you're no good, you're a bum, Or are you listening to the message of Jesus that says, my grace is sufficient for you? Say your relationship breaks. Are you listening to the message of Satan that says, you're unlovable? How could you ever think someone could love you? Or are you listening to the message of Jesus Christ that says, my grace is sufficient for you? In your illness, are you listening to the message of Satan that says, you're washed up, you're benched, God can't use you? Or are you listening to the message of Jesus that says, my grace is sufficient for you, Christian? Paul says this weakness he had was a gift because in it we grow in faith and in power. But only if we listen to the right message, the message of Christ, which says my grace is sufficient for you. Now in verses 9 through 10, Paul finally gives us the purpose of his thorn. He says the purpose of our weakness is for us to realize that grace is sufficient for us and it's to glorify Christ. For Paul, his suffering was a gift because it brought him to the end of his rope where he said, God, I simply cannot do this without you. One scholar would say it's weakness that frees us because in it we realize that my only hope and my only righteousness and my only rest is Christ. When we look at our weaknesses and our shame and our brokenness, we must say, that God loves me for Christ's sake. Our weaknesses brings us to those points. Don't hide your shame. And don't hide your brokenness and don't hide your weaknesses because when you do, you steal the glory of God. Paul says it's precisely in our weakness that God brings himself glory and we experience the power of Christ. Therefore, the Christian response to suffering must be Glad acceptance and boasting. Listen, Christians, we're not masochists, all right? Uh, We're not like little pledges that say, thank you, sir, and I have another. We, We don't like suffering. We don't take pleasure in it. Paul himself prayed three times that God would remove this thorn, but at the end of the day, he said, I must boast, and I'll meet it with glad acceptance. Why? Because Paul trusted God, and he trusted his sovereignty. And he realized this weakness is causing me to grow in my faith and dependence upon the Lord. And it's precisely our weaknesses in which God brings himself glory. And we experience the power of Christ. Now lastly, and very quickly, in verses 11 through 21, Paul gets to his main point. He says, the underlying purpose of of my message this whole time has not been self-defense but for you to identify with and imitate me. That's been his whole purpose this whole time. Paul is doing an old pastor's trick here, okay? He's moving the cheese on the congregation to suck you into the text. That's never happened here before. He moved the cheese, right? He's sucking you into the text. This is what Paul does in verse 19. He says, do you really think that this whole time I've been trying to defend myself to you? No, I've been offering myself to you as an example. For you to emulate. Those early uh, Christians, that few minority who refused to repent, they were beginning to follow the example of those super apostles. The example which proclaimed self-sufficiency is better than weakness. And they were beginning to follow that. They're beginning to believe that. And Paul says, don't follow their example. It will lead to death and ruin. Rather, follow my example, which I put forth for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, Everywhere I go, I teach my example, which is the example of Christ. Paul says more so than the doctrine of justification by faith and all these other doctrines, what Paul teaches the most is his example that he has in Jesus Christ. And He says, Christian, follow my example. What's the example he wants us to follow? First and foremost, we are to have a passionate love for one another. A passionate love for one another. John, or Jesus in John chapter 13 verse 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now this means that we are not identified as followers of Jesus by how much money we make. or About what our car is or how big our homes are. Or how self-sufficient we are or how powerful we are. We're not identified by those things. We're not identified as Christians and followers of Jesus by how holy other people think we are. We're about how devoted our devotions are that we devote to the Lord. We're not identified by those things. We're not identified as followers of Christ by our apparent lack of weaknesses. Both Paul and Jesus say, you are identified as my follower, my people, by the love you're to have for one another. Which was lacking in these these people. This means a few things. First and foremost, this means that we do not consume our brother as an object to an end. Those super apostles were tricking those Christians. They were manipulating them, treating them as objects to be consumed, to meet their own end, to have self-glory and to advance up the social ladder. Paul says that's simply not loving. It's not loving when you turn a human being into a stepping stone. It's not loving when you turn a human being into an object to meet your own end. I have not loved you this way, and God certainly has not loved you this way. I've been like a parent to you. I've stored up everything that I may give to you. God has stored up the riches of heaven to give to you. The Christian does not consume his brother for their own end. And secondly, it means that the love that we're to have for one another is sacrificial. Paul says in verse 15, I will most gladly be spent for your souls. (laughs) You'll gladly be spent for us. Paul says, if you want me to be a fool, fine, I'll be a fool for you. I don't agree with it. I think it's pointless, but I'll certainly be a fool for your sakes because I love you. If you want to know about my weaknesses, I will invite you into my weaknesses because I want you to understand the power and the grace and love of Jesus Christ and I want you to experience One of the greatest problems facing our church today is our issue with image management. We spend so much time and resources trying to pretend that we're people that we're not, trying to hide our weaknesses and our shame. What we really need to do is to pull a page out of Paul's book and invite people into our suffering. To invite people into our brokennesses and into our weaknesses. That's exactly what Paul did. It'd be so loving if you got a younger person and pulled him into your stories of brokenness, your your stories of failure, because that person will say, wow, this man has an interest in me. He loves me and he's showing me that I'm not a screw up, that faithful men in Christ have experienced these things. I'm not alone. And both of you will have the opportunity to experience the power of Christ together. Paul says the Christian is to have a passionate love for one another. We don't consume each other, and we love each other sacrificially. Now, secondly, in regards to his model, Paul says to be of the same mind. There is no such thing as a snowflake Christian. This is what I mean by that. We live, live in a postmodern world where the self is exalted and individuality is praised. We live in that world. Now because we live in that type of world, we run the danger of compromising our moral standards and our life in the faith based off whatever our personality and environments are. Paul says, listen, in verses 16 through 18, all Christians, no matter what your upbringing, what your personality, have the same mind and they have the same spirit. Therefore, you should understand that these super apostles are not from the Lord. One of my greatest experiences I've ever had in my life is when four years ago I went to Cambodia to minister to some Cambodian Christians. Uh, when I went there, I was—I was before I went there, I was really terrified because I really felt that I would never be able to relate to these people. That'd be kind of a wasted trip. I mean, our cultures are vastly different. Okay, they're in the jungle; we're in Memphis. They have a completely different upbringing than me. We have a different sense of humor different jokes, I was, I was afraid I wouldn't be able to relate to them, when, when I got there, I was pleasantly surprised because I realized I could relate with every single one of them. Why? Because Christians have a commonality. We all love Christ and our only hope is the gospel of Jesus. It doesn't matter what your upbringing is. It doesn't matter what your personality is. Everyone in this room, if you're in Christ, you have the same heart and you have the same mind. Paul says, Christians, don't be fooled by false apostles by false teachers. You will tell who is a Christian because they will have the same mind and the same spirit as you. Now there's three things that we learn from that. First and foremost, there is no deviation from the mind of Christ for the Christian. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through five, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy... Complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This mind, Paul says in verse 5, is yours in Christ Jesus. Why is there no deviation from the example that Paul has set forth? Because the example of Paul is the very mind of Christ. And if you're in Christ, that means Christ is in you, which means you have his mind and you have his spirit. Second, we see that the mind of Christ is the actual pattern of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, we see what Jesus' Jesus's pattern is. What's his pattern? Jesus put aside his glory, became nothing, became a servant, even to the point of death. He gave away everything so that you may have everything in him. How could Jesus do that? That seems costly. Because Jesus knew that everything that he could possibly ever want, need, or desire, he already had in the Father. Which means as Christians who are in Christ, we can spend ourselves for each other. And we can love God fully because everything that we could ever want, need, or desire, we already have in the Father. And when we come into faith with Jesus Christ, we receive his spirit. We're being transformed day by day not just so we can be better sinners, but so that we would turn into Christ himself that will become little Christ, that will become Christ-like. When you have the spirit of Christ in you, you're being transformed into Christ-likeness. Therefore, there is no deviation from the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ is the very pattern of Christ. And lastly, we see that the aim of Christ, and therefore the Christian, is to please God. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, whether we are a home or a way, we make it our aim to please God. A goal that was not of the super apostles and a goal that is not met when you follow their example of self-sufficiency over weakness. Now, the last thing that Paul wants us to emulate is this, to live as new creations. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, 2 Corinthians verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now in verses 19 through 21, Paul is directly addressing that small minority of people who have yet to repent. And he's telling them, Christians, don't hide your sin. Don't be content with it. Don't compromise it. But certainly don't hide it. Rather, pursue Christ and experience His grace. Now, if we're to do that, there are two things that need to happen. One, we need to repent and put away the old. Have you ever thought about this? Repentance is not a burden. I know lots of us, we get you know, our, our feathers ruffled when we have to repent, but it's not a burden. It is a gift from God. Scholars call it, or theologians call it, a grace unto life. God has given us the gift of repentance. Because in repentance, we can agree with God that we are sinners and are unworthy, but we also can experience his grace and forgiveness. Paul says, Christians, you who have not repented, live as you are. You're a new creation. Repent and experience the grace of God. Secondly, embrace the new and pursue Jesus. And this is Paul's probably most important point. We're all new creations. That's who we've been recreated to be. We're God's new people, we're his new race. No more Jew or Gentile, no more rich or poor. We are God's new race. And day by day, we're being transformed into his likeness. We see from Paul that the Christian chooses weakness over self-sufficiency and glory. Our weakness, don't hide it, because it's the very realm in which God glorifies himself. And you experience the power and promises of Christ. And Paul gives us himself as an example which is actually the example of Christ in whom we have been given everything and we are new creations. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank You for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank You for reminding us through Your text this morning that we don't have to hide in our shame, that we don't have to hide in our brokenness or in our weaknesses. We don't have to cover them up and pretend to be people that we're not because it's precisely in our brokenness that You are glorified, God. Give us strength to be bold. Give us strength to trust in the Gospel. And give us tre- strength to rest in the grace of Jesus Christ. We love You, O God, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What's that?